Hey everybody, this is Marn. What you are about to hear is a episode that is a part of a pilot season of a horror book club podcast that was recorded in the winter of 2019-2020, with the last episode being recorded literally right before quarantine uh, went into effect. That's just some context for the pilot season of Dead Letter Society. After this season airs, it will be back with a slightly different different format, but until then, enjoy! Society, a horror book club podcast. I'm Marn, your spooky host, and every other week I'm going to bring a friend into my library of terror to discuss a novel, short story, or piece of interactive fiction that scares us. Tonight we're going to be talking about The Twine Game Halfway to the Lamp Post by Caitlin Tremblay, and with me is my guest, also Caitlin. <laughs> yeah, I'm a narcissist, that's why I picked this. Marn, you gotta get the ravens out of this library. They're not good for the books. I know it's an aesthetic thing, but like... They're just everywhere. I know, I feel like it really sets the tone. It does, but what of the books? <laughs> you might know Caitlin uh, from other podcasts such as If Not Us Then Who, Sugar We're Going Down Podcasting, and the second season of Interstitial. It's true. I did all of those things. I guess I'm still doing like two thirds of those things. Yeah. Huh. I thought I thought you were going to say I'm still doing Interstitial. I was going to be like, what? <laughs> it's just me. <laughs> Just running one shots of interstitial by myself. I do all the voices. You just get in in the uh, recording booth every week by yourself. Yep, I do all the dice rolls. Interstitial, the GM doesn't roll, but I still am rolling always. <laughs> So before we talk about the story, I want to do content warnings as per usual. Content warnings for this story slash twine game are abusive relationships, stalking, child endangerment, child death, generally a lot of implied violence against children. Also as per usual, we will not necessarily be touching on every single one of these subjects in great detail in the podcast, but if you want to read this game on your own, those are things that you need to be aware of. Yeah, especially because uh, the content warning on the game just says content warning. Yeah. I know that you can find more explicit warnings online, I think. I went uh, looking for articles about this game because I was like, am I like the first person who's going to discuss this game in any kind of critical literary standpoint? And apparently, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not well known. Um, I found out doing a Game of the Decade podcast that wasn't mine that... Halfway to the lamppost, if you Google it, one of the first things that comes up is an article I wrote about it, and it's a fucking listicle. Oh my gosh. I feel like I read that. You might have. It was about gay horror games, so that seems pretty up your alley. Oh yeah, I super did read that when I was looking for if anybody else had written articles <laughs> on it today. It's me, <laughs> the foremost expert on Halfway to the Lamppost, as published in Gaming Magazine. <laughs> The only, the only other person who's discussed it in critical capability. I should put that in my Twitter bio. <laughs> Number Four one, months. halfway to the lamppost critic. <laughs> you should. Oh. Oh yeah, the super is written by you. <laughs> it's not just written by me, it's super written by me. <laughs> Yeah, this was definitely the one article where it's like, oh, this has actual content warnings. <laughs> Instead of the game just saying content warning. It's me! I did the work! You did it! And you brought it's, the work here. It's literally just the Spider-Man pointing me. That's <laughs> just what this podcast is. Well, now I feel unprepared because I haven't written an article about this game. Well, shit, Myron, hang up, write an article, and we'll reconvene. <laughs> I feel like you showed up to class with, like, all of the notes, and I showed up, like, 15 minutes late with it, like, pulled up on my laptop. 
Which is so funny because it's literally just like a little twine game. And I've been trying to write about it actually for ever since I played it like two years ago. But I have not had the emotional fortitude to do so. So yeah, it's very funny to me that I am the foremost expert because I wrote a Halloween listicle and not any of the deep, insightful, critical things I wanted to because it made me cry too much. (laughs) So... I guess to start, we should talk a little bit about just kind of a general overview of this game. It is like, it does have a bunch of like different paths you can choose, but I feel like it all kind of follows the same general narrative arc. Mm-hmm. And it, I mean, it all has the same themes, obviously, like it is a thematically coherent game. <laughs> <laughs> Could you imagine if one of them was just like wildly, tonally different? Mm-hmm. So Halfway to the Lamppost is a game where you are playing as a younger girl named Caroline and she is walking to a friend's house and they are meeting each other at the lamppost that is kind of the halfway point between their two houses and she is stopping kind of at every house in between her house and the lamppost and experiencing very creepy stuff oh god i just opened the game in browser and the and it the did the scary noises was so loud yeah if you play if if you intend on reading this uh you should know that it has background noises and i didn't realize it because when i played it for the first time i was on a computer where the volume was muted and then i opened it later and i was like oh no <laughs> uh-huh i was like i did that to myself earlier i played it without headphones and then I put my headphones in to record this podcast and I still had it on and I was like, oh no. And I immediately slammed my browser shut because I was very afraid. And so as you're leading Caroline through this experience, you're also getting kind of like these flash forwards from her from like a first person perspective of like her as an adult in this kind of like shitty abusive relationship. Also, Caroline is like, or Caroline, I don't know is, like, very into spooky shit. Like, she's very into, like, the Bloody Mary myth and, like, the number of houses between her and Melissa, who's the other girl, is 12, but she really wants it to be 13, so she counts, like, a big garage. So she's just, like, very down for, like, supernatural shit. And I only bring that up because it's, like, part of the meta-narrative of the, the whole idea is, like, what we thought was scary as kids ended up not being as scary as what real life is. Yeah, I feel like definitely kind of the the narrative arc of this game is like Carolyn kind of discovers as a kid that she's invincible and she like chooses to embrace her fear of like the the stuff on her street and like the spooky shadows of the dark and stuff. And then like as an adult, she's in this relationship that like she wasn't prepared for and like she's very afraid of like this person that she's dating and she doesn't know how to handle that as opposed to like handling a spooky monster. Mm -hmm. And I really liked this game. I haven't like played through all of the different kind of like branching paths, but I feel like I would like to sit down and do that eventually. (laughs) Yeah. I've played through like two and a half. Because I played one where I got, like, I guess it's technically three, because I played one where I fucked up one of the timed events, because something about this game is there are certain sections that you have to react in time, and if you don't, you die. Uh, and I didn't realize that, and I definitely died. And then the other one I got was pretty grim. The one I got today was actually, like, kind of positive, but also very sad. Yeah, I, uh, the first time I played it, I think actually maybe both times I played it, I got the same ending where it was, like, the kids were okay, but then it ends as a downer for, like, adult caroline yeah that's the one i got today and then the one of the ones i got was like one where like adult caroline was like i don't think adult caroline ever gets like a good ending but she felt like she was in a better place uh interesting yeah i wonder what i did that i always got the doubter ending for for her as an adult like i wonder what variables you have to change yeah i can't i think I'm trying to remember, because this time I played mostly clicking on the, like, the Melissa choices. I don't know if it's, like, if you mix the two or if you pick more of the Carolyn choices. It might also be, like, how much you embrace the fear when you're walking. I don't know. My goal is to be able to talk to Kate Tremblay about this and find out. Because she's she's a bigger deal now. Like, she did um, 
a mortician's tale. And she works at, or she did work at Ubisoft. I don't know if she still does. But this is the game that I'm like, no, this is the one I want to talk to you about. I really like it. I am, I'm fascinated with like the the timed stuff because mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of horror, like interactive horror games on Twine use that kind of element of like you can program in like timed events and like you could program in text to show up when you, like exactly when you want it to on the page, like a couple seconds apart. And that super fascinates me because I've made a bunch of twines before generally for horror stuff and i'm really like i have theories about why a lot of popular twine games are horror and like why horror writers are so drawn to uh twine as a format yeah i was thinking about it because we've been recently having a bit of a of squabbling over at uppercut over uh visual novels and like night in the woods style games where they're largely like just platforming and stuff with like mini games and like not if they're games but like if they need to be games and i think this game is really cool cuz it shows that like it is just reading but having that timed aspect is like something that you could not get from a book or a movie and i think it's i think it's compelling even though it's like a pretty simple mechanic yeah, I agree. And I and I feel like one of the reasons car writers are so drawn to Twine is because it gives you that control over pacing. Uh-huh. I mean, if you present something that people can click through, like, obviously, they're just going to do it as fast as they can read. But, like, you can literally time it so that they can't do that. Yeah. Well, and, like, what happened to me when I encountered it was I was streaming it and, um... You know, I'm so used to like visual novels and stuff where you can just kind of go at whatever pace you want to go. And so then it took me super, super off guard and it like kind of fucked me up because I like killed Carolyn because of it. Oh, no. Yeah. God, I'm kind of tempted to like play through and just let it time out on the stuff that it could time out just to see what happens. Because I like (laughs) I legitimately I read so fast and I click through stuff so fast. I realized that there were parts where it could time out and you could die. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. There are. And it's sad. It's so cool. It's really cool. I I like this game for a lot of reasons, but that was definitely one of them. Because I haven't played a ton of Twine games, um, and I haven't played a ton of horror Twine games. This was definitely my first. So seeing that, I was like, whoa. Twine is, yeah, Twine is super cool. This might be one of the, like, more sophisticated things that I've seen done with Twine. There's another good one that I bet you would like. I need to I need to look at my itch library to see if I can remember the name. But it's about this like old English folktale slash or it's not a folktale. It's like a lady who like ran a scam um saying that she was giving birth to rabbits and it was like a real thing that happened and this person took that story and made it into like a really creepy like sad game. I Yeah, I, I've definitely heard that story. I didn't know there was a Twine game about it. That's super cool. Yeah, and it has, like... You know how rabbits sound really fucked up? Yeah. Yeah, they have that in the game. Oh, that's so wild. That's so cool. I love yeah, it. Yeah, I'm gonna have to see if I can remember the name of it. It's very unsettling. <laughs> twine games that have sound are so scary to me. Yeah, it. I think it has pictures, too. I can't remember. It's been like two years since I played it. Because I found all these games like two years ago when I was doing like spooky queer Halloween streams. And yeah, I don't remember. if I I, want to say that there are pictures in it though, because I feel like I remember seeing rabbits along with hearing them. Hmm. Also, rabbits are fucked up sounding animals. Yeah, they are. I hate it. More rabbits in horror because they're fucking scary. Yeah, twine games that have sound always freak me out because I feel like there's no way to tell if the sound is suddenly gonna get much much louder than it is Mm-hmm. like andrew was saying on argonauts a couple of weeks ago that like one of his biggest irrational fears is that he's gonna like answer the phone for a telemarketer and the like auto voice thing is just gonna start screaming at him oh my god that's how i feel when i pull up a like a browser game that has sound <laughs> it's just gonna start yelling at you yeah <laughs> uh, 
I know logically in my mind it probably won't, and there's probably, like, no way for them to finagle that, but, like... But who knows? I don't know that they can't do that. Yeah. So here's what we'll do. I'm planning on learning Twine this year so that I can hopefully do record collection next year. Oh, fuck uh, yeah. To do the idea that I came up for with for uh, record collection last year. So I'll let you know if that's a real thing that can happen or not. I have just, like, extremely basic knowledge of Twine. Like, I could not tell you how to program, like, a timed sequence or sound or anything. But... Stuff like this makes me more interested in learning because I also really like the flicker effects on some of the text. Yeah, it's really cool. Like the neon looking like light shit. Mm hmm. Yeah, it's neat. Twine is cool, actually. Twine is cool, actually. Do we want to talk about some of the actual like themes and stuff of the game? Oh, yeah, I guess we could do that. <laughs> yeah, we probably should. I mean, to be fair, I feel like the all of the mechanical stuff ties into the the themes and the writing very well. Yeah, I agree for sure. I think that's the beauty of Twine that you can just like fucking do that. Yeah, I agree. Like narrative games are my shit. So like I I am very much a like a story you click through is a game fuck you kind of person. Mhm. So I feel like we already kind of touched on the themes of this game being kind of like this stuff that you may or may not be scared of as a child doesn't really prepare you for, like, real-life fears. Uh-huh. And, like, when you're little, it's kind of like the unknown is what you're afraid of, and then as you get older, like, you kind of know the things that you're afraid of, but that doesn't really make them less upsetting to you. Yeah, it kind of makes it worse. Like, there's a line where she, when it does one of the flash-forwards, where she talks about, like, Kind of almost exactly what you said, but there's, like, one line where she's, like, like, everything that I was afraid of as an adult was just in one man. And I feel like that really, like, hits that theme home. Mm -hmm. Uh, Two, I like, though, that they kind of, depending on how you, how your adult ending goes, it can kind of flip. Like, the one I got today, like, it brings the shadow back and kind of shows, like, there's still, like, a little bit of edge of, like, supernatural fuckery afoot. And I think, like, it's mostly, like, metaphorical of, like, you know, she leaves her shitty ex or whatever, but, like, she still has all of this, like, fear and shit going on. And that can still, like, eat you up, even if you get rid of, like, the bad thing. Yeah, I really like that. I like that, um, once you get to, like, the the part with the shadow, like, the third option, you always have the option to ignore it. Unless that was just on the playthrough that I did, it doesn't do I that. I think you do <laughs> always have the option to ignore it. I thought and I that like was that. I like so that cool. stuff, too, of, like, because, like, it, like, when you're dealing with a shadow, you get, like, the three options, usually, and one's, like, investigate it, one's, like, run away, and one's, like, just ignore it, and if you pick just ignore it, the game, like, it doesn't, like, do, like, the Danganronpa, like, critique, like, ooh, you're a bad person, but it does say, like, you're not learning to deal with your fear, and the darkness intensifies because of that, and I think that's super dope, too. Yeah, I... Completely forget what I was going to say now. Jesus Christ. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I got any of the endings where it had the the shadow still, but I liked that it kind of always, in in at least like the childhood parts, gave you the option to ignore it as just like kind of reminding you that it was there even when you weren't reading, like actively reading about it or thinking about it. Yeah, when I like... I do like that it, it, it really pushes home the idea of, like, the more you ignore it, the scarier it's gonna get. Mm-hmm. Because, like, just because you ignore it, that doesn't mean it's gonna go away. Yeah. And and I once I figured out kind of, like, the conceit of the child parts, which is that, like, the more that you ignore the scary stuff or, like, run away from it, like, the more danger you put Caroline in, I was like, oh, this is super dope. Actually, like it, the game forces you to like think about and like confront the really scary stuff as a child, even when your instinct kind of as like an adult playing this game and being told like you have to protect Caroline is naturally like, oh no, Caroline, run away. Yeah, well, especially because a lot of the choices too that are like more investigatory sound like. The shit that you would yell at someone in a horror movie to never do. 
Mm-hmm. So it definitely, like, just plays on a lot of your expectations of, like, what you're supposed to be doing. And I think that nails home, like, what it's trying to say about fear a lot more. Yeah. And especially because, like, you don't really get to interact with older Caroline at all. Like, you don't get to choose any options for her. Mm-mm. And it shows that kind of like the options that you choose for child Caroline have like a ripple effect into older Caroline's life. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's like the only way that you can influence that storyline. Yeah, I think that's why I ended up getting the shadow ending and the one I played today. Because I only did, I alternated between the runaway and the ignore it. And then I think because of that, it came to be the point where it was like, okay, well, Caroline never learned to deal with what scares her. So now she's alone and she doesn't know how to deal with that. So it's going to consume her. God, that's so depressing. <laughs> yeah. But it's fucking good. Mm-hmm. Like, that's such a cool thing to, like, not, I don't want to say to be able to gamify, but, like, to be able to convey in a piece of, like, interactive fiction is yeah. so cool. It's really cool. Uh, Kate Tremblay is really good at stories. It is, yeah. I uh, I looked at her uh, itch, and I'm I kind of want to check out some more of these games. Yeah, um, she fucking rules. I need to check out more of her smaller stuff. Halfway because, has just kind of stuck with me because I was like extremely impressed by the cohesiveness. I guess of this. I I feel like a lot of horror twines are. I'm trying to think of how to say it in not a mean way. I feel like a lot of horror twines have like a very strong kind of visual at their core or like a a very strong concept, but they don't always follow through with a theme necessarily. Uh Uh-huh. Some of them are just like, wouldn't it be fucked up if this happened? (laughs) And this one really impressed me because like, kind of everything that happens in it right down to like the coding are in service of creating an atmosphere and a theme yeah i think it's definitely like i mean again i haven't played that many uh horror twine games or really that many twine games generally but i think this is definitely one of my favorite works of horror and like one of my favorite works of fiction ever because it is so cohesive and like every single thing leans into what it's doing And nothing Mm -hmm. feels, like, extra or for Flash. Like, it all has a purpose and it all, like, fucking nails it. It's so good. Martin, I'm realizing it's a little late for me to ask this, but I'm allowed to cuss, right? Yes. Thank God. (laughs) Every single person I've had on this podcast is like, oh no, I'm allowed to swear, right? (laughs) Listen, I don't know. I'm a guest in this uh, haunted library. I don't know if the crows have Victorian sensibilities about language. I mean, considering some of the stuff that I talk about in this in this book club, I feel like you're definitely allowed to swear. All right. I mean, I figured, but I just wanted to be sure. Uh, if you if you're down to pivot a little bit while still talking about themes, the reason that this game grabbed me so intensely when I first played it is it's the first time I've seen what it's like to be in an abusive relationship portrayed so honestly and so well in such a short amount of time. And it really fucked me up because I was streaming it and this was happening and I was like trying to mentally process it while also like still being streaming. So I ended up just shutting everything off and being like, I'm gonna go lie down. Goodbye. Oh my um, But yeah, it's really intense, but like it's really, really good. And I haven't found another piece of media that really, like, resonates with me in the same way that this one does, as far as that. I don't really know where that was going, but... I I definitely agree, yeah. I I feel like it's a really honest portrayal of an abusive relationship, even though it it doesn't necessarily go into, like, every single fine detail. Mm Mm-hmm. it really just doesn't need to, like... Yeah. It it does a great job of capturing that feeling of being, like, trapped and hunted and, like, like, this one person is so fucking terrifying, but at the same time, as soon as they're gone, it's also really terrifying. 
without having to get into, like, the nitty-gritty of what the abuse actually was. Yeah, it's fucking very resonant. I don't know. It was wild the first time I played it. Yeah, I I was kind of impressed by how very little it actually showed of Caroline's kind of relationship with this guy, but how much you come out of it knowing just from, like, her Mm -hmm. own thoughts and like the way that she feels about this guy who never actually really like appears on screen yeah i don't even think we know his name right um i don't think so no i think the only thing that we actually get a description of him is that he has blue eyes yeah he definitely is described in the text i don't think he ever gets a name yeah i think that's the only like physical detail you get about him too is like his eye color Mm-hmm. Which I think helps to very much to kind of like equate him with the shadow monster. Yeah, which I like, but I also like in the ending, the adult ending with the shadow where, because like, I think it's so easy to draw that parallel. And I really like that ending because that ending is like, no, that man is scary. Yes. But like the things that you fear exist without a human manifestation, you know? Like they they are they're related but like separate and it kind of feels like like again like what we were talking about before of like the child stuff impacting the adult where like the thing that you found the most fear in as an adult went away but that doesn't mean it's necessarily over because you didn't learn how to like cope. Yeah, I feel like this connects to um Alyssa and I did an episode where we just like talked about Stephen King's It and like cycles of abuse and stuff like that. And I feel like it kind of connects to the themes in that where it's like as a child, you're you're scared of like very concrete things that can like appear to you as a monster. But like when you're an adult, your fears become so much more like abstract. Mm-hmm. And two, I think like I like the idea of like the the Carol and adult ending where the shadow and the man are different. Because I feel like, too, it kind of exemplifies, like, that fear when the abusive person is gone and you don't really know what you're doing without them because they've, like, taken over your life so completely. I mean, like, obviously, Shadow's just a big old metaphor for fear in general, but I like like it taking that role because it is, like, again, very resonant with that experience of, like, walking away and knowing that it's done for good and then just being like, oh, what the fuck am I supposed to do now? Yeah. Which is, like, a very real... Feeling, I think, because I I feel like a lot of stories with abuse narratives kind of end on like, oh, like this person is free, they can go back to their life or whatever. When a lot of the time, it really is just like, well, what the fuck am I supposed to do now? Yeah, no, I mean, like, I'm still like getting over shit from my abusive relationship. That shit sticks with you forever, and you have to do like so much work to unlearn it and. I think this, yeah, again, just, like, really paints a more honest picture of what that experience is like. Yeah, and it's, it's like, you don't suddenly stop being afraid of something just because you've, like, run away from it. That is always gonna be a part of you. Yeah, it's about learning to deal with being afraid, which, again, I think ties back into that ending of Caroline doesn't learn to deal with being afraid. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you don't. Yeah. Sometimes there's stuff that you can't learn to deal with. Yeah, sometimes you're just afraid forever, and that sucks, but that's how it be sometimes. It truly is how it be sometimes. I really like horror stories that are just about the nature of fear and how people deal with it. Me too. Me too. I feel like that's going to become a recurring thing on this podcast. This is like the third time I've talked about it. Honestly, Marn, I think you've just given me clarity as to why I don't like the Babadook. Oh my Uh, god. (laughs) Why don't you like the Babadook? I don't like the Babadook because I feel like it's a a meditation on the same idea of like being afraid of loss and stuff. But then at the end, the monster is real and it's like, pick a lane. (laughs) Is it a metaphor or not? That's true. I also didn't like the Babadook that much, but I, yeah, I feel like that kind of touches on stuff that I didn't like about the Babadook as well. Yeah, I like, I like horror where it's either like, yes, the monster is real and it's like a thing that you have to cope with. And like, yes, like obviously all monsters are metaphors, but like, like I like when either like the the monster is canon 
and it's a thing that's coming and you have to deal with it. And yes, it's representative of anxieties or whatever, but like it's a it's a concrete thing or that it's purely a metaphor that's like trying to talk about like the nature of fear or loss or whatever. And the Babadook's like, what if both? And it's like, fuck you. <laughs> yeah, the, I feel like the Babadook very much tries to have the best of both worlds. So you're like, And it does it. <laughs> like, here's our metaphor. But what if... <laughs> It was also a fucked it's, up guy that looks at you. It literally does the unless. <laughs> unless. What if this was a metaphor for grief? Unless. <laughs> the ARG group that Andrew and I met in used to Babadook post at each other where we would just post images of the Babadook. <laughs> <laughs> and... At one point, someone in the group, like, went out of town for a weekend and had, like, a a printer that had Wi-Fi on it. Oh, no. (laughs) Someone sent their printer, like, ten distinctly different images of (laughs) Do you remember when it part one came out and everyone was like shipping Pennywise and the Babadook and there was the whole like the Babadook is a queer icon thing? Yeah. Um, one of my friends went to a Halloween party as the gay Babadook and it was truly the scariest thing I've ever seen in real life. Oh my god. I I feel like I uh I I saw like an interview with like the creator of the Babadook where she was just like genuinely baffled as to why the <laughs> Babadook is a gay icon now. <laughs> I mean fucking same. I yeah, I feel like I still don't understand it. That bitch doesn't speak for me. <laughs> that bitch doesn't even know if he's real or not. Uh, that friend group also had a thing where we would invert uh, the colors of the Babadook and call him the, <laughs> the Dadabuck. <laughs> Wait, I think I have a Dadabuck on here. Hang on. God, I oh, just, yeah, there I, he is. I just, I will never... Christ, I hate that. He just looks so goofy. It's simultaneously more scary, but also friendlier. (laughs) I think he looks better that way. I like, I, he, like, he looks like he would be your friend, but like, he also might take a bite out of your shoulder when you weren't looking. (laughs) Yeah, the teeth definitely look more photorealistic. Yeah, like, I don't think he would do it maliciously. I just think he'd get the hungies, you know? Mm -hmm. Sometimes he just want to chomp. Which, like, mood, but I don't think that he would restrain himself. I feel like... We've gotten off track talking about the Babadook and I... I know. Now I just want to, like, I... I, uh, I just want to ask you about a bunch of other horror things, but that's, like, not related to what we're talking about at all. So I'm really trying to, like, hold myself back. <laughs> I mean, we can't just make that there is the episode. <laughs> like, if you... I don't want to hijack your podcast. So whatever whatever you're good with, Marn. <laughs> It'll just be good cut content. Okay, because I don't know, like, the nice thing about Halfway to the Lamppost, going back to what we're actually talking about, is that, like, it is a pretty short, condensed experience, so, like, there's a lot there, but, like, I think we kind of dug into, like, a lot of it already. Yeah, definitely, and, like, there's a lot that I don't necessarily want to go into specifics about, because I don't, I feel like if we do that, that it will just, like, absolutely spoil the game, and then, then everyone listening to this will be like, oh, I, I don't need to play that. Like, Marn and Caitlin just told me all about it. Yeah, no, which y'all should play it, because it's, like, it's a very good experience. It is, and I, I also really like the the structure of young Caroline going kind of from house to house, and you get, like, the description of every house. That felt very, like, a contemporary horror thing to me. Mm-hmm. I feel like there's a lot of, like, creepy pastas that do that, where it's like, I went through, like, this hallway, and I went through all of these doors, and, like, every room was, like, scary in a different and creepy way, and now I'm, like, telling you about it. <laughs> you know what I mean, though. I do, I do. It's just, it's just, when you say it like that, it's kind of silly, but yes, I do know what you mean. 
it, but the thing that's the thing like it is very goofy if if you don't do it right <laughs> yeah it kind of it reminds me of the everyman hybrid thing where like vince is going through the doors like for a little bit too long yeah and like i feel like that's very much like a, a contemporary creepypasta thing because it's kind of a very easy format to write in Almost because you just like have to come up with something new and disturbing to be like in every location. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of like a pop-up book of horror, which is tricky, I think. But when, but like when it's done right, it's thematically coherent and it's really good. Yeah, I think it's just I think it takes like a very good storyteller to make it work. Yeah, I agree. Um, I have been reading a. A story on Reddit on No Sleep recently that's called like House of a Hundred Doors that is kind of the same concept almost, but it's also like they're inside like a a house that responds to their personal fears and like some of the rooms are like fucked up versions of like their own house. Oh, and it's really good. <laughs> It's super good. I'm really digging it. And there's, like, I feel like No End House was the original one of these that, like, everyone kind of apes off of. And that got, like, a a TV show adaptation, I think, that was interesting. I enjoyed it. I know that a lot of other people did it. (laughs) But that one also has, like, a weird twist ending where it's like, and then I escaped the house, but actually I was still inside the house the whole time. Okay. Which is very, like, classic creepypasta. Yeah. That's the thing that I think has kept me from getting further into creepypasta than, like, the bare minimum that I have is just because, like, for every really cool good one, there's a lot of them that I'm just kind of like, all right, I know what you're doing here. Yeah, I feel like the state of creepypasta in this day and age is very much like you have to have an extremely curated experience and, like, only read, like the top voted things on no sleep or like stuff that your friends recommend to you or you're just gonna get hit with a lot of garbage (laughs) (laughs) like to be honest you really are yeah i think i think creepypasta is one of those things that i'm gonna enjoy from afar because i don't know if i have the mental fortitude to like get invested in it Um, that's fair i'm still working on having the mental fortitude to like read books again (laughs) Oh, I mean mood. I like when creepypastas get adapted into, like, TV shows or movies. Because then I can be like, oh, I knew that thing before it was cool. <laughs> Just good to be a horror hipster. Like, the, the left-right game is getting turned into a, a movie, I think. Or, like, a... Oh, no, they're, they're making it into a podcast. Oh. I feel like they're doing that a lot more lately. Doing, like, the, like, highly produced podcasts out of creepypasta shit yeah i mean there's like the the no sleep uh podcast that does like adaptations but yeah i feel like it's becoming more of a more of a thing yeah i can't remember uh, i saw one the other day and i can't remember i don't remember like anything about it so this isn't really a good anecdote but i do remember seeing one that was like based off of this like i think it was like either like a no sleep reddit post or like it was some creepypasta shit and I was like, huh, so this is just, this is a thing now. Like, I'm here for it. But damn. And and stuff like that is really interesting to me because I feel like the format of a horror story very much affects, like, how scary it is. And you kind of have to bend stuff to fit the format. Like, how Halfway to the Lamppost has a lot of, like, the time stuff and, like, the cool tricks with the text and the font and whatnot. And, like... You you very much can kind of, like, punch up a, a very subpar, like, written short story to sound good in audio if you, like, script it very well and have very good sound effects. But then you have stuff like Knife Point Horror, which is just, like, Soren Narnia reading his own work without any sound effects at all. And it works because, like, the writing is genuinely scary. Yeah, I've been meaning to get into Knife Point. I've also been meaning to get into that one that Wheels plugged on the Bear Stearns Bravo episode of Argonaut, the you read to me one winter night or whatever the fuck it was. 
Oh, yeah. I've been um, listening to a couple of those. They're really I, good. I just have a hard time with that kind of stuff because, like, my mind kind of wanders when I listen to podcasts. Mm-hmm. So I'm afraid that I'm, like, not going to pay attention and then I'm going to tune back in and they're really good. And then there was a murder! And I'm going to be like, what? Knife Point is fairly good for that because a lot of the earlier episodes are only, like, 20 minutes long. Okay. There was an episode of the the other one that I really liked. I haven't listened to all of them because they're really long and I don't do well with, like, stuff that's, like, three hours long <laughs> because I get bored. There was one that was, like, a really interesting take on, like, a zombie apocalypse where, like, all of the dead came back to life, but they don't, like, attack anyone. They just, like, kind of come out of the graves and start, like, shuffling around and, like... <laughs> They're just vibing. Yeah, and, like, it, it basically, like, causes a, like, a countrywide shutdown because nobody knows what to do. And it's, like, it's super interesting and I really, really liked it a lot. Uh, okay. I need to get on that. I need to finish reading Horror Store too. Horror Store is so good. I think the next episode I record of this is going to be Horror Store. Not the next episode that people hear, because I'm going to release these episodes way out of order. <laughs> Who knows how much of this is even staying in. But since we're just fully leading into talking about other horror bullshit now. <laughs> uh, Marn, have you, are you familiar with the work of Cassandra Kaw? That sounds super familiar, but... So she has written, I guess they're like novellas more than like novels. What is it called? There's like, they're like a franchise. What is this fucking series called? The first one is called Hammers on Bone. And the, the second one is something about music. It's very cerebral. But she also wrote on The Silence Under Your Bed. I don't know if you've played that. That sounds super familiar. Yeah, it's a Kevin Snow, Cassandra Ka joint that came out last year and it's like a set of it's like an anthology of horror shorts but like as a visual novel and it's pretty good and I like Cassandra Ka but she's very like cerebral with a lot of her horror mm-hmm. and I think it works in like the hammers on bone shit oh per- persons non grata is what the series is called and it's like weird cosmic horror shit and I do recommend them but I think it works better in that setting because when she tries to do it in like a short, short story, it's really like confusing. I feel like it's hard to get cosmic horror to work. Yeah, like the the short stories that she did for The Silence Under Your Bed aren't cosmic horror, but they're still like very like high concept horror. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really, really hard to execute on that in that short of an amount of time. So I don't know, but I yeah, do I feel- recommend if you're, I feel like you would like those books and they're really short. They're like a hundred pages. I will check them out. Yeah. I feel like cosmic horror is very hit or miss. Yeah. I like the cosmic horror in, in these books in particular because like it's clearly referential, but mm-hmm. it's also like all, like a lot of the characters are people of color and like, she's a person of color and so, like, it's it's definitely, like, reckoning with how shitty the origins of that are. And two, like, she just, she's really, really good at describing, like, fucked up cosmic shit, which I think helps a lot. And a lot of this stuff is, like, really effective because it's, a lot of her writing is just, like, describing people's, like, kind of instinctual reactions to things. And that makes, I think it lends itself to the cosmic horror stuff really well because it is kind of that idea of, like, you know, the things that are so, like, big and scary and like sublime and how you're just kind of like animal reacting to it it's dope yeah and i i feel like definitely the most effective horror is a lot of times stuff where it's like fuck you i'm not gonna explain this (laughs) and and i feel like halfway to the lamppost gets a little bit of that because there's like the shadow thing and you never find out like what specifically it is or where it came from it's just like a horrifying thing that is following the protagonist that you're, like, trying to protect her from. I think that that does do a really good job, though, because, like, it's not trying to be anything, like, really big and all-encompassing, even though it is, because it's, like, like, what kid wasn't afraid of the dark, you know? Yeah. And so I feel like it's an easy thing to swallow, like, oh, yeah, you're afraid of, like, a shadowy thing in the dark, because, like, kids are, but then it's also, like, so much more than that. But in this, like, neat little package, and so she doesn't have to explain it. Oh, God. I read a really good quote 
hang on, I gotta find it, because I want to attribute it to the correct person about (laughs) this exact thing. It was basically someone talking about how, like, the more specific you make something, the less scary it is. Um, Yeah, it's the Moby Dick thing! Yeah. And, And they were saying, like, oh, if I look at, like, if I look at my attic door, like, I'm not afraid of it because, like, there's because like I know that there's like a ghost named Mary on the other side and like she died in the 1800s I'm afraid of like being in my room and looking at the dark doorway because the doorway is where things come to stand yeah like it's it's literally the Moby Dick thing it's like when you show the whale or you show the monster like human imaginations are so much more creative and will come up with so many more like fucked up things than if you give it like a concrete thing to like Mm -hmm. wrap itself around that's also why the witch sucks i haven't seen the witch it sucks marn can you add a section of the show where it's just like a soundbite of me having a horror hot take just out of context (laughs) fucking screaming me yelling fuck the babadook and fuck the fuck the witch God, I found the quote, but I can't find who it's by. <laughs> oh no. Good lord. It really just uh just has a link that is broken, huh? <laughs> it's definitely some like famous horror director or author. Um, yeah, I feel like I've heard the quote you're talking about, but I I'm very bad with, like, directors especially. I don't know the names of people who make films. Oh yeah, okay, here it is. If I'm sitting alone at home on a dark and stormy night and I glance nervously up towards the bedroom doorway, my fear is not that my house is being haunted by a spirit called Mabel who died in the 19th century at the age of 14 and is constantly seeking her favorite teddy bear, because all of these details both humanize her and make her ridiculous. My fear is that something (laughs) will be standing in the doorway because the doorway is where things come to stand. Because unoccupied spaces in our imaginations must find something to fill them. Yes. The one time I would say that I think I don't agree with that is specifically for the Alien series. And this yeah. is another this is another horror hot take, I think, perhaps. Because I like the like prequel films that explain like how it all happened. Cause mm-hmm. like the androids being all creepy and homoerotic and genocidal is scary. I need to watch the like the entire Alien series probably back to front. <laughs> yeah, I do too because I've only I've seen Alien. I fell asleep during Aliens, and then I've seen the one that came after Prometheus, but not Prometheus. But I do like the explanation in that because like I like the explanation is also scary. It's just it's just scary in the way of like your future society is scary because you made androids that want to fuck themselves and also murder everybody. Yeah, I've been told that Prometheus is like very much my shit. I need to watch Prometheus still. I don't remember I was going to say isn't Alien Isolation? No, that's the video game. I don't remember what the other one is, but I did see that in theaters. Don't know why, but I did. I liked it. I I know a lot of people didn't like the prequels, but I most of my friends that have seen them I think really liked them. I like them. I think like I'm a bit I'm a slut for lore, so like especially because like like Alien is like a horror movie, but it's also like a sci-fi thing, and I feel like sci-fi does better having a little bit more lore. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I think especially with sci-fi stuff, like, you can get away with showing the scary thing, especially if it's, like, something that's very not based in human biology at all, because then you still have that element of the unknown in that you're like, oh god, what is that? Yeah, and I think, too, I think the like the thing about sci-fi is a lot of the time, like, it's trying to, like, talk about the implications of technological advances, and so, like when you have scary fucked up monsters that came from like scary fucked up technology, I think it's okay to explain that because like the horror isn't necessarily the monster. It's like what created it. 
Yeah, I was um I was reading the uh the novella that the thing was based on today for the first time because I like read somewhere that they're gonna do like a remake of it that is more based on the original novel. Yeah, um, Bloomhouse. Bloomhouse joint. Yeah. Cause a couple of years ago they like discovered like the full novel manuscript and everyone had just like thought that it was a novella. Um, but apparently the author wrote it into a full novel and it was just like lost until somebody went through his shit a couple years ago. <laughs> um, I think he like donated it to a university or he like donated a big box of like all of his manuscripts and stuff and they just like didn't go through it until <laughs> recently. But I was reading it today and I was like surprised because the first couple of chapters they like actually describe the alien that they find in the ice and I was like oh that's interesting because like in the movie adaptation like you don't really know what the thing looks like when it's not like in a host body yeah that's kind of that's weird and they, they do kind of imply that it's like an alien that was assimilated by the thing and like crash to earth but i was like oh it's still like super weird to have an alien here at all but like explicitly that is it in the movie <laughs> yeah wow that's a that's interesting it is and and it really goes in on it it's like oh it has like three eyes and like its hair is made of snakes and i was like okay <laughs> interesting <laughs> something some futurama shit <laughs> I also thought it was fun because the first like two chapters are just like the guys at the at the base being like, "Hey, we found this fucked up thing in the ice. Should we like keep it or put it back?" And like also it's giving us weird psychic nightmares. Everyone's like, "No, we should keep it." <laughs> oh my god, I think I read you. Didn't you tweet about that? Uh-huh. Yeah, I read that and I laughed cuz I was like, "Damn, mood." This is my this is my backdoor segue into talking about that novella. Surprise! It's second book club. <laughs> Mar's gonna tell me about a book I haven't read now. <laughs> the book club within the book club. It's just like the thing you thought that we were gonna talk about. <laughs> I thought we were going for like a Hobbit's like second breakfast vibe, but yeah, no, the thing is a more apt description. You thought that we were going to talk about Halfway to the Lamppost, and then this podcast opened its chest, and it w- had teeth inside, and inside was Who Goes There, the novella that the thing was based on. Honestly, I want every podcast that I'm on to reveal that it has secret cavity teeth. Because <laughs> that is absolutely what I've done to If Not Us, Then Who. <laughs> But yeah, like, circling back, I think, to the point we were making, I think that, like, horror that is very rooted in concepts that we're familiar with does well when it doesn't show a lot of things or, like, tell you directly what things are. Like, Jaws, where, like, they don't really show you the shark until, like, the last 20 minutes of the movie. Um, Okay, but then there's the six Jaws sequels where they tell you it's a zombie voodoo shark, so I don't know. Alright, (laughs) listen. We don't talk about the Jaws sequels in this house. Martin, I'm a sequels loving bitch. I don't know if you've heard. Not specifically with Jaws, but just in general. I love bad sequels. I mean, me too. Disney sequels are my favorite movies. You ever watch Mulan 2? That's a good movie. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, it's good, Marn. We're best friends now. Officially. Cinderella 2 is like my favorite Disney movie as a child. Oh my god, have you seen the, is it, I think it's the third one with the time travel shit? I haven't. <gasps> I need oh to watch god. it. Oh my god, Marn, you have to watch it. Do you have, I, it might be on Disney Plus. Do you have Disney Plus? I don't. I have Disney Plus. You can use my account. <laughs> I can just pirate it. <laughs> oh, I guess that's a thing that people do. I'm afraid of doing that, so I don't. I just got to hear Disney Plus free from my phone company. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. But yeah, I think I think that stuff that deals with very human concepts does well to like not show you a lot of it because less is more and like the stuff mm-hmm. that your own mind extrapolates from stuff like that is always going to be scarier than like whatever the writer could tell you. But like 
stuff with very alien concepts, I think, can definitely get away with showing you directly stuff. But also, some of, some of it doesn't have to. Like, I, I saw Color Out of Space over the weekend, and that was very scary and did not explain shit about what was going on. <laughs> I feel like I haven't seen it, but doesn't Annihilation like also not really explain what the fuck is going on? Yeah, Color Out of Space reminded me a lot of Annihilation, actually, because it like uh people start like physically mutating and stuff and like the environment around the house starts like becoming like alien terraformed and like they just straight up do not give you an explanation as to what's going on. And I feel like that's also very much like a cosmic horror vibe where it's like the universe is so indifferent that you're not going to get an explanation for it. Yeah, and I'm into that too. I think I like I like it being explained when the process is the horror and like the monster is the product. Other than that, I think like less is more absolutely. Yeah, and I and I think that kind of circle back, I think that this game is a very good exercise in less is more. Yes, hell yeah. It's so, like, compact and, like, streamlined. It's pretty much what a good, in my opinion, like, short horror story should be, which is that it kind of cuts out all of the crap and it just goes. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, obviously there's, like, the, the timed things where you have to wait for the text to show up, but, again, I think that, that Twine gives you this control over pacing that like you would not have otherwise if this was a short story and like control over what the reader is seeing versus what they aren't yeah 100% I think that you can only get that kind of like direct control over pacing through twine because I think like having the player interaction is important too in a way that like you can't get with a movie or a tv show yeah and especially because like you also get the sense of, like, oh, because I'm playing a Twine game, there's, like, stuff that I'm missing and, like, stuff that could have gone differently. Mm-hmm. Which it's is like, very I wish, I wish that, like, more horror things... This is gonna be a really weird pull. I wish that more horror things that had, like, branching... Honestly, I wish that more, like, branching path narrative games did the thing that Dragon Age Origins did, where, like... So, like, the start of the game, you play through the origin story of your Grey Warden... But, like, all of the other origin stories are also happening. So, like, whoever you don't pick, like, either, you know, like, goes to prison forever or is, like, murdered or whatever, like, and, like, that comes up later on in the game. That's so cool. I didn't know that. I've never yeah! Marn, I love Dragon Age Origins. I have a bunch of friends who really like it. I've just, like, never played it. It's so good. There's some good horror shit in that, too. But that's not what we're talking about. But yes, I think (laughs) if you have branching paths, I think it's cool to make the branching paths canon. And to, like, show what you, like, sacrificed. Yeah, and I, I, I also kind of like that this game doesn't really, like... I guess it doesn't really, like, punish you for having an imperfect playthrough. Like, obviously, if you die, then, yeah... But, like, yeah. if, you make, if you make some of the wrong choices, it's not like, oh, you're dead instantly. I feel like it almost encourages you to make some of the wrong choices in that, like, you can get different outcomes for uh, Caroline as an adult based on what you choose. Mm-hmm. And now I, like, kind of want to go back and replay it and see what other stuff I can get. Yeah, you should fuck around with it. I want to. <laughs> I feel like we may have said all that we can say about this game <laughs> since we keep circling back to other horror stuff. <laughs> yeah, I think I think we might have done did it, but it's a very cool game. It is. Uh everybody should go play it. It's well, I'll link it in the show notes, but uh you can also find it at Kate K A I T underscore Zilla at itch.io. That is Caitlin Trumbly's itch page. And there are other games there as well that I'm gonna check out because I'm super interested in seeing what they're all about. So 
that's been this show. Caitlin, do you have anything that you would like to plug or say before we close this out? Yeah, if if you like just my general presence, you can check out my other podcast that Maren already listed at the beginning of the show. But also, if you like me talking about video games, um, I do so vaguely more coherently over on my website, Uppercut, which you can find on Twitter at UppercutCrit or at UppercutCrit.com. Uh, it's pretty dope. Also, uh, we have a couple podcasts on there, and uh, yeah, it's just a good time. I'm bad at plugs. We did we did a podcast episode where I was on it, and we talked about Midsummer. That is true. We did do that. You can find this podcast on Twitter at Dead Letter Pod. I don't think that I have anything else to plug, but that's where you can contact me for this podcast. You can find me on Twitter also personally at Corp Survivors. Uh, and until next time, thank you for visiting the Dead Letter Society. Bye. <laughs> that's ours, baby. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to be like, return your library books. John is a farmhand, seeking his fortune after killing his abuser. He finds out what friendship and love is for the first time by sticking with the first person he meets on the road and never leaving. Cody is that person, a busker on the run from his former best friend, whose gang he borrowed too much money from in order to secure health care for his sister. Along with a priest and a burlesque dancer they meet along the way, John and Cody race across post-apocalyptic America, outrunning, outgunning, and outwitting the crime syndicate that runs the country. Prairie Song is a serialized queer web novel full of dynamic characters, strange towns, and campy villains. It's a story about seeing yourself and others, coping with trauma, queer found families, and radioactive people, places, and things. Prairie Song is, and always will be, free to read at prairiesongserial.com. You can read updates there every Friday, or become a patron at patreon.com slash cardzeropress to get bonus content like early updates, illustrations, character profiles, and more. Prairie Song Book 2 is currently in progress, and there's never been a better time to catch up. Join us at prairiesongserial.com for the post-apocalyptic adventure of a lifetime. <laughs>